Okay, I'm going to try this. Uh, welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Timothy Plain. And I'm Mark Brussel. This week, we've got Paulina Ligudi with us, and her first feature film, Mail Order Monster, uh, premiered earlier this year at a film market, EFM, um, in February, and then it's being distributed now by Film Mode Entertainment. This is true. That's awesome. Amazing. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, you guys. This is exciting to talk to somebody who's recently finished their first feature film. And we watched the trailer, and one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is because it's a genre film. Um, It's cool that it's like kind of kids mixed with, what would you say, science fiction fantasy? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely got like those sci-fi fantasy adventure family elements. Um, That kind of, I for me, it was like I loved those elements about you know, very traditional family films from like the 80s and the 90s. Oh, and I kind of really wanted to do language. an ode to that. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So it was, a, it was a lot of fun, but it definitely came with some challenges for sure. Before we get into your one minute bio, I do have one quick question for you. Yeah. And you might not have seen my movie, but I, I made a movie called The Spirit Machine. And it also has uh, a girl. She's in my movie. She's roughly like 16 years old and she lost her mom. And I was wondering, oh wow, where did we come up with this idea of a girl losing her mom? Where where were we influenced? Because I don't totally know. I don't. I mean, for me, it's a lot of like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I a lot of this came from my own life. I mean, I haven't lost my mom as in like a death lost my mom, but a lot of this came from my own life in a lot of ways. And I don't know. I think sometimes when you're working in family movies, you're working in like the kids world it's sometimes nice to really like just get to the bare bones of things you Mm -hmm. know what I mean and really kind of like break it down whereas like it's a little bit more difficult to tell a a very streamlined family movie where it's like this girl who has a strained relationship with her mother but she's still kind (laughs) of in the picture but they only text every day you know what I mean (laughs) right let's let's give her a huge tragedy up front that she has to overcome yeah. yeah I think it's like there's something about a loss of a parent, loss of a loved one, that's just good foundation for yeah. a story, no matter what. I mean, Bambi starts off with her mom being killed. Yeah, I mean, Lion King, so many of them yeah, do, like, exactly. they do that. Yeah, It's classic. It's classic. <laughs> All right, so let's jump into a one-minute bio. Try to distill your life up until this point in one minute, if you can. Oh, boy. One-minute bio. Here we go. Um, so I... I'm originally from Sydney, Australia. My family and I moved to Las Vegas in the year 2000. Um, And so I grew up there for a very, very long time. Um, I went to Chapman University in Southern California and I was a dancer growing up. I was a competitive dancer. And right before college, I had a terrible foot injury that kind of got me into the world of theater and film and whatnot and went to Chapman. And that was awesome. Um, after Chapman, I met my fiance, who's a cinematographer. And since then, we've been making things together. Um, I created my production company, Jack's Productions. And I've been very fortunate to make, you know, short films, branded films or branded content, uh, commercials, and then this feature film, Mail Order Monster, um, and I write as well. So I've been able to write scripts and most recently got a a feature film script job off of Mail Order Monster, which was pretty cool. Awesome. Um, So that's 
wow. a minute, I think, of nice. Yeah, that was, that was great. I mean, <laughs> that's because that opens up so many new questions, right, Alric? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to jump right into, like, getting the job off of Mail Order Monster, because I feel like that's the ultimate goal for um, a lot of filmmakers, is to make a movie and then get, get an actual professional job from it. Yes. Um, so, yeah, can you talk about how that all played out? Absolutely. It was very unexpected. Um, so, essentially... When I made my film, I sent out the screener when it was completed to a bunch of different uh, sales reps and companies that I had already had um, conversations with before. And this one company was interested in distributing the film and taking it on for foreign sales. And um, they weren't who I went with in that regard. And then because I, you know, had a different relationship with this other company and it just was a better deal. But then they ended up calling me like, a week later and they were like, listen, we know it didn't work out with Mail Order Monster, but we have this story. Um, it's a true story. It's also a family film. We loved the Mail Order Monster like script and story so much. We've been having these writers do treatments and we're not really finding what we want. Would you mind giving a stab at it? And I was like, sure. They said, okay, you know, this is the essentially the scope of what is and then just like send us a treatment in a couple of days. And so I was like, cool, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they, you know, were telling me about the budget they were working with. And I was like, oh my God, this is a bigger budget than I would even know what to do with. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I can do it. So I'm like, oh my God, I don't even know how to write a true story. <laughs> nice. da, da, da. But then I threw it together and I ended up getting the job. And it's a co production between uh, Brazil and America and Canada, I think, because it's like a Brazilian based story. So I'm like, I never would have thought I'd be writing. <laughs> a family wow. film about an old man and a penguin and a true story in Brazil. I'm like, this is unreal. But yeah, they ended up um, ended up getting the job and then we just signed a contract a couple months ago and I just sent in the first draft last month. Wow, that's so it happened awesome. pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah, it was super awesome. But it, again, it was like, it was very unexpected. And then speaking to your point about like getting jobs off of your movie, it's very, um, it's difficult, especially like, especially with that gap between when you complete it and when it comes out, like no one's seen it, you know what I mean? So it's hard to get jobs off of that. So you kind of feel like after you do a movie, you're like, cool, I did a movie. No one cares. <laughs> yeah, like, it's kind of anti-clarity. Right, yeah, <laughs> until it comes to the time where it's like, okay, now I get to promote it and now I get to like, you know, now I get to start sending it out um, and people get to see it. But I was very, very lucky in this scenario. I mean, it was a total, I don't even know. It was just like the universe threw me a bone, I guess. <laughs> but you know, even after you've like, after the movie's out in the world, it's not like immediately as day one, as soon as it's out, all these opportunities start coming. It could be like a year later as someone had seen it and then remembers you when they have this project that comes up. That's what's weird about, I feel like the um, waiting for something to happen with your film is that you don't know when that is gonna, gonna occur. So there was actually a topic that we didn't get to in one of our solo episodes a few weeks back where I wanted to talk about kind of that feeling of, yeah, you finish your movie and it's kind of set up for the release and, you know, you've already done one premiere at a film market and it's about to come out in November. So maybe you don't have the totally feel this yet, but I always felt like when a movie comes out, you think that it's going to be this kind of like big firework explosion and that's going to be like kind of the peak of of the experience of it but it actually always to me felt a little anticlimactic like the filmmaking process never really peaks anywhere there's kind of like peaks and valleys throughout the process rather than building up to this one big crescendo absolutely no you're 100 percent 
correct there. I think that's also why it's like, and I kind of learned this, I learned this lesson pretty quickly after we finished the movie because we finished it very quickly. I mean, I started writing the script November 2016. We shot the movie July 2017. The movie was completed December 2017. Sales, it premiered February 2018 in Berlin. So it was like an extremely, extremely fast process. And you're absolutely right. Like I pretty much had to learn the lesson of like, you know, you really can't do it for that validation. You know what I mean? You really can't do it for <laughs> right. that. Like everyone loves me, kiss my feet. I made a movie right. because you'll just really end up disappointed. You just have to, you know, no matter what, like go back to square one. Like after we finished our, our movie, my fiance and I, we just were making no budget, low budget shorts and specs. And then a friend of mine, you know, hired me to, um, we collaborated on a commercial for her food product as well, but we were just like, you know, just keep creating stuff, you know, with what we have, we own a camera. It's like, yes, we just did a feature, but we have to keep always going back to the drawing board and keep grinding and grinding, you know? Right. And I guess that's the lesson. It's not like your life changes overnight, you know, it changes. And if you're like trying to steer your boat 90 degrees, the, the, the length of the feature film kind of like every little piece of piece of it that kind of changes your trajectory only changes it by like a degree at a time so you know one day you'll wake up and you'll realize you're facing 90 degrees but it's not like a, a an abrupt change it just happens slowly over time absolutely yeah it's that's 100 percent correct so was um making a feature always kind of your goal from when you were going to college and after you graduated um i can't really say it was a conscious goal. I can't say it was a conscious goal this quickly. Like I thought maybe it would happen further down the line, but um, it was, this movie was kind of a matter of happenstance in a way where I was actually hired to come on to a movie called Mail Order Monster, um, completely different script, completely different storyline. And I was gonna, you know, I was the line producer on it. And then a month before we were set to shoot, they lost funding or maybe the funding wasn't even there. I don't really know. And I was like, oh, this is such a good title. I'm, I contacted the writer and I bought the script. And I was like... <laughs> oh, wow. Bought yeah. the script bully, bully. the title. I bought, I bought the script. And <laughs> I essentially rewrote it, you know, entirely. You know, his the story was originally about a young boy whose parents separate and then get back together at the end. Um, and there were elements I kept, but pretty much I gutted it because I was like, male water monster, it spells out mom. Like, I want to play into that you know and mom's or the title of mom has always been a very interesting topic in my own life like I have a stepmom and she's you know my closest friend she's amazing and I was like there's really not a lot of you know I really want to take this family genre which I never thought I would make um and really play into something that hasn't a story that isn't given enough light. Like, take the elements of family movies that we absolutely love, but at the same time, like, so many step parents are treated in movies as like step monsters and all that stuff. And I was like, you know, let's just let's make a more modern day family movie, but with that old school feel to feel that works, that old school kind of like um, format. So, mm. you know, like I said, I so I essentially bought the script and. October, I believe, and then yeah. started writing the script in November after I went to AFM for the first time. Because oh. um, I went to AFM and I just started like pitching log lines. Um, and what, what kind of stuck, I was like, okay, then that one stuck. I'm going to 
kind of riff off of that. Um, so it ended up becoming this like semi-female empowerment step-parent positive family movie, um, sci-fi adventure thing. Uh, yeah, and then it just kind of like rolled um, from there. So you kind of went after it because the circumstances just brought this idea to you and had you not had this idea it might have taken you a little longer to find it find find the thing that made you passionate yeah I probably wouldn't have made a genre film or I probably wouldn't have made a family genre film I probably would have done some you know like gritty thriller or sci-fi thing like what you know most people do for their first feature like no one's like yes I'm gonna make family movies as like you know a young (laughs) college graduate um but I'm actually I don't know maybe I did yeah right (laughs) I mean I don't know why not like some of the best movies are family movies um but you know they tend to get a bad rap because people look at them as just like these you know b-movie money makers which couldn't be further from the truth um if you approach it correctly and uh but yeah, it was it was really interesting too because the reason I also gravitated towards this the script and the title so much was because I did speak to you know some distributors at AFM and I spoke to a couple distributor friends of mine um, before I bought the script and they were like you know that's a really really good title and title is a big thing and this is also towards like 2016 where people were really trying to grab onto more of those like family genre films because they were less risky. I mean, they still Mm kind of are, but movies, I mean, the market's changing every year. Right. Well, Um, from what we heard is that those were like on demand when, you know, families are scrolling through things to watch, you know, they're more apt to purchase something or rent something that they haven't heard of before if they have kids. Whereas, you know, as you get older, you're less likely to just take a risk on something. You want to know that there's an actor that you know or that you've heard about it written up somewhere or that's in wide release somehow. Exactly. Yeah. No, you're 100% correct. And so, um, yeah, so I just, you know, based on those aspects, I was like, okay, well, for a first feature, like from a logistical and producing point of view, this is a lot less risky than trying to make some sort of, you know, festival drama. Um, And I kind of had some theories on, you know, feature films from a producing point of view that I really wanted to test out. I like truly thought that most of the time, independent filmmakers, when they, you know, I'd worked with a lot of different people on their indie features. And um, when they approach their first feature, they do a lot of things that cause them to lose a lot of money. So it's not just the nature of indie films. A lot of times people shoot themselves in the foot that make it so much harder on themselves. And I, I really wanted to approach this in a way where it's like, okay, I can use this as, you know, a little bit um, of a case study for like feature stuff. Be like, hey, I did this and it turned out, you know, to do fairly okay and give me your money for the next one. <laughs> what, what are some of the things that you saw that people lose money on on their first features? Like some of those mistakes? Um, it's a lot of the times it's not thinking about the final product from a packaging point of view. So they'll think about it from like the story and the creative, but they don't often think about like where it ends up, the life it's going to take, and then kind of reverse engineering from there. Like you guys were saying um, before we jumped on the, the podcast, like we decided not to do festivals because it's a family film and it really wouldn't help us. And also knowing that the family genre and the way independent film is changing so rapidly for us is it, it was about getting it out there as fast as possible. And I know a lot of indie film producers that I've worked with before, they tend to hold on to their movies too long in post. And 
sometimes they end up actually yeah. missing their market because their market was like two years ago, but they kept it in post. You know what I mean? Because a lot of fear or trying to recut it. And so that is a lot of ways they shoot themselves in the foot or they think their movie is like the Sundance winner when it's not because like, you know, every festival has a certain type of film that they're going to promote or, and sometimes too, like for, if you have a feature, you have to really like campaign for those festivals ahead of time, you know, and get the agency on board. Like it's not always the case, you know, a lot of the times you can just blindly submit, but you know, you got to make sure your film is right for that festival, even just from like the type, the tonally, you know, or the type of film that it is not, that's why there's different festivals for different types of films. So if people don't get into the Sundance or the Tribeca or the South by, they freak out then they hold on to it then they recut it. And then, you know, next thing you know, they've been holding on to this film for years and years and they've missed their market. And like, you know, films, the longer they stay in post, most of the time there's always, you know, exceptions, they depreciate, you know what I mean? Like there's just yeah. going to be things that change that, aren't as relevant as they used to be. Um, unless for some reason you have an actor in it that blew up in like three years while you were holding it. So there's that. Right. Yeah. Unless you get lucky, basically. Yeah. Unless you get lucky. And at the end of the day, it all like should be part of your strategy. Um, a lot of times people also make a film without thinking about audience. It becomes very, for features especially, it becomes very, um, just self-involved you know it's like this is the story that i'm passionate about that i want to tell that is my life and it's not really speaking to anyone so yeah they get to the market and it's like maybe beautifully shot and beautifully directed but at the end of the day like it's going to be hard for people to sell because they're like really no one cares about this as much as you and so it's like oh yeah i guess no one does care about my grandfather as much as me you know (laughs) because he wasn't famous (laughs) Well, I think I think it's a little easier for genre filmmakers, you know, whether it's like a comedy or a family film or sci-fi or horror. I think as long as you're satisfying the genre, you're going to be setting yourself up um, for more success than if you're just making an indie drama that, yeah, is about your grandfather who you love, um, but doesn't actually fit into any genre category. Um, If it's about your grandfather that you love and then you turned it into, you know, like a genre movie around that grandfather, I think you'd probably have a lot better success, you know, because those genres sell, right? Absolutely. Um, that genre is really, really important when it comes to, um, but see, that's being smart and that's thinking about audience and that's like being able to, you're, you're correct. Like you don't have to not tell a story about your grandfather, but be smart about it. Like that's what separates right. for me, short films for feature films, short films, you really get to experiment, you know, no one's expecting to make their money back. You can make them for no money features technically too, but at the end of the day, like it's a product that you're going to sell. So you have to think about, and you're creating a like a mini startup, a mini company every time you make a feature. So you have to think about things, especially if, you know, you're doing it very low budget indie and you're, you know, wearing all the hats, you don't have a full giant team behind you. So like, you really have to think about these things from their entire life and the whole scope of the package and not just the tiny portion, which is the story in the movie itself. Yeah. So speaking of shorts, how many shorts did you do before you went out and made this feature? I made three shorts. And how long were each of them? Uh, all of them were under 15 minutes. Do they play at festivals? Yeah, they played at festivals and all were very different. Um, our very, very first short was like this little comedy. And that one, we really didn't push festivals too much because we were just, and it, we could have, we just didn't because we didn't really know what we were doing. And from there I was um, getting some branded and commercial work. So I just kind of 
didn't really think about it. The other short um, I did got into Holly shorts, which was a lot of fun. And we did a couple other festivals out of that. And then I did another short film that's, you know, in 2016, that's, I mean, it's premiering at another festival um, in October, like next month as well. So it's that one that had a good uh, <laughs> festival run. Yeah. Wow. Nice. I'm really curious about like you wrote the movie and then how quickly you were able to get it made from when you finished the script. But, but first, um, when you went to the film market with your, with your finished film earlier this year, did you experience any like, you know, people being like, Oh, well, what festivals did it win? Like, Oh, wh where was the festival thing? Or was that just not a part of the conversation? Cause you were at this film market selling this brand new movie that you just finished. Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, most distributors, like when you're selling to, um, you know, different countries or whatnot, really don't care about festivals unless it's a massive festival. Um, or it's a really good, like an incredible genre festival for your film. Like for my family film, no one really cares about festivals. They're just like, oh, will we be able to sell it to our audience? At the end of the day, like that's truthfully all they care about. But speaking on markets real quick, I actually took the teaser before the movie was done, the teaser to the American film market. And that's where we met with a bunch of different sales agents before we signed with our sales agent. Um, so we did that actually before the movie was completed. So I always highly recommend people go to a film market before they've even done a movie, if they're thinking about doing a movie, if they just have a script, if they don't even have their film completed really, really recommend it. Um, but when it went to EFM, it was kind of nice because, you know, I didn't have to be so hands-on with it. My sales agents took it. Um, and we got two sales right out of that film market. And we got more sales out of Cannes when we screened there as well at that market. Um, but honestly, we've never had any like issue as far as not doing festivals. There are a couple festivals that may be more helpful for family films as far as a marketing point of view. So with festivals, they sometimes don't always help with getting distribution. Sometimes another approach, which my sales agent and I talked about this too, is if you already have distribution and then going after festivals that line up with your release. So if you're going to be in a festival that's a little bit smaller, it's not like the big Sundances or whatever, you can go to maybe a second tier or third tier festival that come, you know, that happens to premiere or screen a month or two after your release, or maybe the same month or a month after, and then you can just use that PR to help drive the marketing for your film. Because a lot of the times what happens where people shoot themselves in the foot is they're like, cool, I screened at Bentonville Film Festival, and I still don't have a distributor, right? And at the end of the day, it's like all yeah. that PR and that audience that they built there they kind of lose it by the time the film actually right. comes out. Yeah, just going back to the the AFM thing and, and the film markets, um, it, it's interesting because if if the festival circuit is never really part of your, your distribution plan, then I guess it doesn't really ever hurt you in a way if you're just like, no, we're going straight to distribution and it's not like in your your model, then no one's going to question it, right? No one's going to be like, oh, it didn't play at a film festival. You're like, yeah, because we didn't submit it. We're not doing it that way. You know, yeah, and that's um, very genre dependent too. Yeah, I was gonna say right. it's probably easier to sell a movie like a heavy dramatic piece if it's one stuff at festivals because that is what draws an audience to it because it kind of puts that stamp of approval. But with a family 100%. film, you know, I mean, how many Pixar movies are kind of like this movie was like was a winner at Sundance or 
you know, premiered at South by Southwest. That's just, that's not really the model for family films. And that's not what gets audiences to watch those films and probably a lot of genre films too. So I think it just, yeah, depends on what, what the audience needs to feel like, oh, I'm going to pay to go see that movie. But like, honestly though, I mean, if I made, you know, say it like took the family out of it, it was just like, you know, a really cool, fun sci-fi action film. And, you know, same release came out in November, I would have really positioned to premiere at like Fantastic Fest, right? Because right, exactly. I that can then that, use that audience, audience needs needs that kind of stamp of approval. Exactly. But like kids don't probably, because your main audience is going to be kids or families and they're not looking for that th- that marker on the, the movie before they buy it. Yeah. Be, to be honest, what, fam- what I've, re- you know, with this research that I've done on family films um, and that we've luckily been able to um, acquire is a lot of, there are a lot of online review sites for parents that either parents have created or parental groups have created. And that is a resource that more families will go to um, to see what films are kid approved or like because sometimes too you watch a trailer you watch a movie and you're like oh this seems you know harmless enough and then it turns out you know it's actually like (laughs) oh shit i didn't really want my kids to see that one you know what i mean so that's actually what we've targeted more so um for our film which we've been lucky to get really good reviews on and they can help promote from that online perspective there Okay, I'm I'm going back again off our our outline, <laughs> but I'm just really curious. So, like, when you went to AFM with the teaser for for mom, uh, what were, what were those meetings like? What were those conversations like? Did did you just say like, here's the teaser, the movies in post will be done X date, or was it more like, here's the teaser, if you like it, we can send you a rough cut of the film? Like, what was what was your strategy like with the teaser? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so I actually had a production consultant that I brought onto the film, like when it was still in its script stage. Um, her name's Stacy Parks of Film Specific. I don't know if you're familiar with her or whatnot. She does this really great um, client base, you know, just flat fee production consulting, and she essentially hooks you up with like all her contacts, right? So she set up a lot of meetings for me at AFM ahead of time, people she's worked with and vetted because she comes from a distribution background. And I also set up meetings for myself. And I did exactly the first thing you said, which was, here's the teaser. This is the date it's going to be complete. Let me know if you want to come to the screening. Um, A lot of people wanted to see a rough cut, and I was very adamant about not sending them a rough cut, only because the fact of our monster had to be completely created in post. As far as like the voice goes and the actual sound design and like without that it was a very anticlimactic monster (laughs) I was like so so much of my movie was sound design and I really didn't feel comfortable sending that out you know so I think it just depends on your film like if you know that the movie really comes across and all the elements are mostly there in a rough cut you should probably send a rough cut out to only the um, sales agents or distributors that you're most serious about because some of them may want to be involved in that that final cut process. They may want to sign on and say, hey, if we just change this one little edit here, like I know we can position us for like the Berlin Film Festival or something like that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like if, if you have one big element that is not uh, there fully in your rough cut, that totally makes sense not to not to share that because 
I think people are easily turned off, you know, and I think despite being in the sh- in show business, I think a lot of people in the business side of it don't necessarily always have the imagination to imagine what it would look like when it's done, you know? So I think, yeah, don't, if, if like for, you know, my movie, for example, if my portal's not done, I shouldn't be sending out the movie with an unfinished portal because that'll completely kill the whole story, basically. Absolutely. And you know. everyone always has an opinion about it too when it's not right. done. And you're just like, exactly. I don't want to hear your opinion because you can't see my vision. And, and I think they lo- they easily lose confidence as well, you know, because if they, they see something that they feel is, is uh, in, like unprofessional or just too low budget or something, then they immediately put you in, in a category that you're not necessarily in, you know. So I can see like that being a really smart move to like wait until your, your monster is actually created you know before you start presenting it because that's like the linchpin of your whole story in a lot of ways yeah and I think also too I was a little hypersensitive about it because you know I did have producer friends of mine that had everyone involved in post like they got opinions from everyone and actually ended up hurting the film more than helping it and so I was actually quite adamant about (laughs) no one actually seeing my film until it was done. I had people that watched, um, yeah, I, I, I had people that watched, um, the when I was in the edit and I wanted some notes on that. And they were like very specific people that I, you know, chose to watch it that I knew would be very honest and whose opinions I trusted and all had very differing opinions. Um, but as far as once that was like locked, once picture was locked, I was like, yeah, no one's seeing it until it's done because, you know, it needs to have sometimes what happens also too. I find in indie films when they have like too many opinions or there's too many cooks in the kitchen, too many producers involved, the voice gets very muddled. The actual like that through line, that single voice from this for the story gets lost. And then sometimes the story becomes very convoluted. And I was like, at the end of the day, if I'm going to fail, I want to fail real hard and have it be my own fault. <laughs> I don't want to have to, you know, say it was anyone else's fault or be because I took too many opinions and I didn't trust myself enough. Like I want to fall hard on my face if that's going to happen. Back to, you know, before you made the movie, um, you've, you've written, you wrote this script, you rewrote this, this script from scratch, basically. Um, you know, you're done with it around in the fall of 2016, I guess. Um, what do you do then? Like, how do you start the path to getting this movie actually made? So I actually had um, made sure that I had the opportunity for funding available before I really started getting involved in writing the script when I did, um, because the script was being, you know, drafts were being done all the way up until when we were on set, like, or the day before set. I did eight drafts of this film, like, very, very fast. Um, So, I mean, I'm from Vegas. My family's in the food industry. There's a lot of people that I've met throughout my life that have always wanted to be involved in movies and have some income. So I was able to get private equity, but what was really attractive to investors and also was really um, an interesting way for me to learn about getting people interested in investing in films, even if you don't really know them, was being able to package the tax structure of my film properly. So my whole goal was, no, even if this movie bombs, it makes zero money, investors actually still walk away happy right? Which most people are like, that sounds completely unbelievable. And most people, like, especially if they're, you know, pretty wealthy business people or whatnot, they have a a lot of tax losses and tax credits that they want to get rid of. You know, they, they need to spend money for taxes, tax purposes. 
but we shot in Kentucky because they have um, a 30 to 35 percent tax rebate and it's um, refundable it's not transferable which means they gave a check to us which was really really nice and we got that pretty quickly but another thing I want to mention is a lot of times when people bring on investors they do Kickstarter the actual LLC of the film never really includes the investors so they become passive investors instead of active investors and when you are an active investor and your name is part of a business and you have a tax loss say like you know the first year you make a movie you're not making any revenue because you're just spending money so it's just expenses and you know what they do is they fill out a k1 you get their accountant fills out a k1 for the investor and they can essentially write off their entire investment because they are an active investor in a business it's a business loss not just an investment loss so that in itself is a huge tax benefit to them on top of the tax incentive, that rebate that they get from the state. So that was something also I noticed not a lot of people do because, you know, they want to shoot in LA or they want to shoot somewhere local to them because they can get things cheap, which actually may be a better, that may be more beneficial than going to a state that has tax benefits, which I can say, you know, there are definitely pros and very much cons to doing it. But something that I really encourage people to look at is getting less investors so maybe getting two or one like strong investor in your film that then can take the majority of um, essentially the profit and loss on your film so maybe you can work out a deal with them where you say hey I'm gonna give you like 75 or 80 percent of the profit and loss on the film which means they get the majority of the tax loss benefit um, you know, or you can give them 100% of it and like you take a paycheck on the film. So it just depends how you structure it. But having your investors be active versus passive is a is much more beneficial to your investors. Just a, a nerdy question. So if we ha you have your LLC, the, the, B, the B members of the LLC are still active um, investors, right? Um, I believe so. I mean, we didn't have be members it was kind of like every there was just a few of us it was just me and then the investors so yeah because the way that because i'm doing this right now and the way that i structured it was um or my lawyer structured it basically was that you know um i'm the only a member i'm the only one who like actually owns uh you know like has control of the LLC basically. And then every investor is a B member. So like they're still part of the LLC and they're still connected to it and they still can do the, you know, K one forms and all that stuff. But, um, it's basically, they're just not, they're not liable in the way that I am, uh, for the company. Yeah. You know? Then that's good. As long as they can fill out that K one, um, yeah. because that's, that's getting them a federal tax benefit, not just the state tax benefit. And that's, what's really important because when you can explain that to investors, you're more likely going to get people because then they can get that money back that, that money back, um, federally when they file their taxes that year within the first year of the movie, you know what I mean? And when they see that benefit, you know, they get to include any tax losses they may have had in their other businesses that year, you know, or personally. And, you know, if you include a state tax benefit, like those are all things, especially within the first year to have your investors at least receiving money in that way. It really, 
really helps with the rest of the process because they're going to be less, um, you're just going to feel less pressure because you're going to get less phone calls of being like, where's my money? You know what I mean? And (laughs) that's something that you just want to get, like have that first year, just be like, Hey, look, not only did we finish the movie, but also like, here's some money. Yeah. 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 I mean, I I do want to just state that all this, you know, sounds so wonderful, but it's a, it's a lot harder to get two or three investors to back your movie um then then you know then it's then it sounds oh, no no 100 percent. well <laughs> like, that's that's also why I, 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 like people have told me that a bunch they're like yo wouldn't you rather have like two or three investors rather than like 20 smaller investors and i'm like yeah of course i would <laughs> well, do you know these people 100 <laughs> percent. like you are 100 percent correct but and something i will say on that too is like the way i did my movie this time actually isn't as viable today because you know after working with my sales agents and like having a lot of different meetings and conversations so many sales agents want to be involved in script stage now like they want to be executive producers now because they want to be able to control how you get your funding they want to be able to control you know if they can get pre-sales because of their relationships and because of how they're packaging the movie so that's something because a lot of sales agents now too are becoming distributors just like you know film mode entertainment for me and a lot of different dis- distribution companies around the world are merging as the whole market changes. So something I would actually suggest beyond just trying to find your own investors is I would highly suggest maybe having a couple investors that are like interested but not committed yet and then go to a film market with your script with a bit of a package that you've created, how you see it and have some meetings or get with like a Stacy Parks. She's also great and she also can help find funding for your film um, depending if she, you want her to be an executive producer or not. So there are a lot of ways um, outside of just the typical structure of like Kickstarter and then finding people that have money. There's actually people that are professionals at finding money that really want to help you find money and they want to be involved in your film too sorry my dogs are sneezing if you hear sneezing um, <laughs> that's okay <laughs> very sneezy dogs um and they shake as well um so that's something also to consider is like look at your distribution and sales first and think okay are, are, is my film along the genres or along the lines of films that they really distribute and do well at and are they the type of sales agents or distribution companies that want to become executive producers on films now and that is like very becoming more and more common yeah i did the whole afm thing last year um in 2017 and uh you know had a good experience i had like a whole bunch of meetings i pitched the movie i got a lot of great feedback but the thing that everybody told me was um you know uh like like who who's gonna star in it, and then how how much of the budget have you raised? You know, and I had raised probably like I don't know, it was like fifteen thousand, twenty thousand dollars at that point, oh, and wow. that just wasn't didn't move the needle for anybody. Basically, that was just not enough. You know, yeah. Um, and uh, and then basically they're just like, ah, oh, yeah, come back next year with uh, what did they say? <laughs> they said come back next year with your full budget, or uh, you know, or a teaser trailer, or something, or just go make it on your own with 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 a no no budget. Oh, it was so like kind of all the advice I got. <laughs> so many people. I mean, listen, I had that said to me so many times. When I was writing my script, someone told me I should quit writing. Like there were so many things oh, that have been said that like <laughs> crack me up all the time. But that's why, honestly, I especially when it's your first film, everyone's very hesitant. Like, that's the thing is like, oh, cool. So I need to just like 
make a movie and just somehow do that and then you'll all back me on my second one so they say right um yeah that 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 was also what they were saying too yeah like you know make a feature and then come back with this project exactly because again at the end of the day like it's all about risk reward it's all about trust so sure like if i was in their position i'd probably be saying the same thing because like you know i don't want to lose money because i'm taking a risk on someone that has no track record right so i i didn't hold it against them i understand that but that's why working with someone like Stacy, she's a very small investment from your film, tiny investment to have her as a production consultant. Like she was great. She helped vet my cast of like who would be marketable and who wouldn't be based on the budget that we had. She was there like throughout every step of the way. And she's a pro. Um, and which is great because it's like I said, she can come on as an executive producer in your film and help you like fully get funding, absolutely everything, the whole shebang. Or she can come on as a consultant where she has like no stake in your movie. You just pay her a small flat fee um, and she's involved from beginning to end. And like, that's wow. something that I knew. I was like, okay, I this is my first time. I don't know everything at all. So I need to at least bring one or two people on board that have done this a million times and no distribution and you can help guide me through the process. So I'm not spending money I don't need to spend and not, you know, and just kind of avoiding a lot of those pitfalls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so just to be clear, you had secured your funding before you even bought the script in order to rewrite it? Or like what po- point did you know that you had the the funding you needed to make the movie? Was it after the first draft or? Uh, it was pretty much I knew that the possibility was there before I bought it. And then by the time I wrote the first draft, I knew that I could get the funding. Wow. Yeah, that's a that's a great position to be in, you know. Um I'm sure that made things a lot easier moving forward and getting everything done. It absolutely did. I mean, at the end of the day, like, you know, it costs nothing to write a script. You know what I mean? It costs time. So my thing was kind of like, you know, I'm in a very fortunate position where it's like I know I can get this money and I don't, you know, I'm going to make this <laughs> I'm going to make this script as good as it can be so I don't have to because I again talking about pitfalls that people make reshoots and pickups had taken up a lot of people's time, you know, in staying in post for many, many years. So I was like, it's a lot cheaper for me to do rewrites in a script than having to get more funding for pickups and reshoots. And that was the thing too. (laughs) I was like, I was adamant about never, ever, ever going back to my investors for more money at all. Um, Because I'd seen that happen too many times. So that never happened, which was awesome. We actually ended up being on schedule and under budget by the time we wrapped. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Nice. So how did you know that you would have funding available to you after you finished your script? Did you talk to people ahead of time or you just yeah. did kind of a calculation based off of who you knew? Yeah, it was, it was, I've spoken to people ahead of time too. And like a lot of the times, especially like coming from Vegas, you know, it's a small town. Everyone knows each other. And it's like, oh, you're in LA making movies and doing things like that. And then, you know, everyone always wants to talk to you about the movies when you just, even if you're doing nothing, you just the fact that you're in LA and you're even interested in movies, everyone thinks that you're like, buddy buddy with George Clooney or something like that it's like yo dude that's not like that's furthest from the truth that's like <laughs> that's not how it happens it's like, like I might have seen him once while walking in Santa Monica but that's as close as I got I know people forget like how small town Vegas is sometimes um but so just different conversations just you know throughout being in LA and then coming back to Vegas or you know conversations with family friends and family you know people just kind of like they just get they just you know express interest in in maybe wanting to do something and so I was able to have those conversations ahead of time um there was serious interest um 
from people about wanting to get involved in the movies in that way. Especially, too, as a lot of people I knew were older as well. They yeah. weren't just like, you know, they'd started their startup last year and were just as broke as I am. Cool. Well, Ulrich, should we jump over to directing children? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm curious to, to hear about this, too. I mean, I, I worked with a 16-year-old on my movie. My whole take on kids is that they're the best actors to work with if you can find one that's just naturally gifted, just because they're so raw and open and emotional that it doesn't take a lot to get a, a performance out of them. I think it's it's more important to choose the right person in casting than it is about like techniques on set. What was your experience working with the 12 year old? Uh, I 100% agree with you. I mean, they're so raw and amazing. Um, Madison is just like not human. <laughs> she's so talented, but also too, she's just the best. She's like a little robot. She shows up on set, like perfectly on time, ready to go. I give her you know, just one or two notes every now and then. She always hit it perfectly. She was just such a gem to work with. And granted, her family's the best. And, you know, we auditioned a lot of kids from all over the country, actually. And any kid that was involved in callbacks, I had them do the callback. And then they stepped out and I brought their parents in. And I interviewed their parents because I knew, one, this is my first time working with kids. Two, I'm going to be in a remote location, which is Southern Kentucky. I do not want to be dealing with, you know, crazy parents, especially on a very low budget feature. And a lot of these kids have worked on TV and, you know, the parents can be very, very demanding. And I'm like, I, I just can't, I need someone that's going to be willing to work with me in a lot of ways. Um, and Madison just has the best family. Her two older sisters also act. Her eldest, um, Madeline, is in like a new YouTube, the star of like a new YouTube series coming out. She's worked um, a lot. But Madison was just she just is a really, she's very quiet and like a really good listener. And so I just knew from the get, she was one of the first people I ever auditioned. And I knew right then and there that she was going to be it, even though I continued auditioning people after her. I worked with Emma as well. And Emma was, I think, 13 when we were on set. So they were only a year difference. But like, what's super interesting about that age between 10 and 14 is no one looks the same. Like there is no set like when people get into high school like they sometimes have a similar look because they've hit puberty and blah, blah, blah. when they're you know under 10 elementary school they all kind of look similar that middle school age everyone develops at different times some are going through growth spurts some are right. not going through so everyone looks different yeah, like, some like, of oh, them this... look like they're nine years old and some of them look like they're in college exactly and <laughs> but they're all the same age and yeah. so that was super super interesting but very real you know so Emma had just gone through this huge growth spurt and Madison's super, super tiny. So we really played up on that in the script as well, um, as far as like the bullying goes. And Emma was also a gem to work with. I mean, she's worked, you know, since she was younger as well. So both were pros. Like they knew etiquette. They knew like just the urgency of schedule and like how important it was for them to hit their mark and how important it was. So I really didn't have to tell them that much like the actors really nailed it like sometimes I had more issues with the adults and the kids which was funny um but the craziest part of working with kids was all the extras that we had were all local Kentucky kids um and at one day I think we had roughly like 130 kids in a scene and I was like oh wow <laughs> <laughs> 
in like no time. Um, and you know, none of them had really ever acted before, but it, it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, kids, that sounds overwhelming. One kid, few kids. Yeah. You can kind of like talk to them and get into their imagination. But as soon as there's like a group of kids, they start judging each other and then oh, yeah. you know they can start breaking down and, or doing things just to kind of get a laugh out of their, their group mates. Oh, uh, yes, 100%. So you really just like, I mean, honestly, I so much of it is a blur because we were moving so quickly that I just kind of went into game mode and then just went, you know, boom, 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 like this is what needs to happen. Um, and most people really just were on board with that. I didn't have to push people too much because they kind of were like, oh, this person's moving and either we're going to get moving with her or she's probably going to kick us out. <laughs> yeah. So did you find your kids in LA and then bring them with you to Kentucky? Only Madison. She's the only okay. one. Everyone else was local. And did you shoot this as a SAG production? Yes, we did. It was a SAG modified low budget film. So does that mean you you had um, like set hours with the kids and you had to have what a tutor on set? Like how does that work? What, so, what are the restrictions? So actually in Kentucky during the summer, you don't have to have... Um, a tutor if they're a Kentucky local. And with Madison, um, she was able to become a Kentucky local. Like her parents had a home that was like in the area and things like that. Cause they were originally from Alabama. So, and like, you know, you're able to get her an address and things like that. So she was able to be a Kentucky local. So we didn't need to have an onset tutor with her, which was huge for us because, you know, like every penny counts. And for us, it was like, ugh, you know, because if someone's a California um, local and you shoot in another state and they need to have a tutor, you can't get a local tutor. It has to be a California tutor. Oh, so I would have really? had to fly out and house <laughs> oh, wow. a so California you have travel, tutor. You have their day rate. You and have their an extra to feed. And I'm do. like, yeah, that's yeah, no, that's just not feasible right now. You know what I mean? So we were able to you know, work with her family and her, you know, prior dress that she had and whatnot and able to make sure that was okay. But luckily Emma, even though she's worked all over and worked a lot in New York, she's from um, Lexington, I believe, Lexington, Kentucky. So she was fine. And then all the rest of the kids were local to that area. And the town was very small. It was like um, Munfordville, which we mostly shot there, only has like 1,600 people as far as their population goes. Did you luck out that you were able to find so many people that could work local, or was that a conscious decision going into casting? Um, that was a conscious decision. Uh, Southern Kentucky, just Kentucky in general, because they have their tax incentive, they're really pushing a lot for film. And a lot of people, it's, where we were was very close to Nashville as well. So that you get a lot of people that um, can work local Kentucky that really just want to be in films. Um, and it's a lot of locals from the area just, you know, they want to be in a movie during the summer because kids are off and it's like, that sounds fun. And they've never done anything like that before. So we were able to hold a casting in the area and, you know, we cast from there. So what about time restrictions and shooting? Do you get only eight hours a day with yep. any anyone who's a minor? That was the hardest part. And 100%. then do they have like certain breaks throughout the day that they have to take or you just can work them for any any time during that eight hours no i mean the eight hours is pretty much what you're given including like once you take out the breaks as well because um it's like they have to have an hour lunch right and it's like as soon as they step on set 
And our, I mean, luckily Madison was super quick about, you know, getting in wardrobe and hair and makeup and everything like that. Um, I don't remember exactly what it was. My AD would have to tell me. I think it was nine hours from when they step on set, including lunch and when they're wrapped. So by the time you take out that time, it's actually some days it was even less than eight hours because lunch is an hour and then hair and makeup and, you know, that right. whole thing. Um, and the thing that was challenging is Madison's in, you know, 90% of the film. I think our the whole film, the whole script is like 154 scenes. I think she's in like 145 of them. So... It was a challenge. Yeah, I bet. And were you guys shooting after she left set on on most days, or were you guys just kind of following her schedule? See, ideally, that's what it would have been. But you know, we did the whole thing in seventeen days. Which, let me tell you, don't ever do that. Um, if you had to do it again, what? How many days would you take? Twenty. I mean, because of our budget, we couldn't. We like had to right. keep. That's it kind of the case with all of us. Is like we can only shoot as many days as we can raise money for. And exactly. So most of us are doing feature films for for in like the ten to fifteen day range. Which, so. if I had adults only, like totally, let's you know ball it out, and we're gonna you know just make this movie, and then you can sleep later. Um, with a kid, it's entirely different. And you know, granted, again, like I don't regret it at all. What was also interesting too is within that time frame, there were times like I had an assistant editor who was my data manager and he would cut some scenes for me and I would straight up do reshoots and pickups on top of my schedule while we were there because I knew we could never come back. So we would have our schedule, which was, you know, sometimes 13 scenes in a day. And I would add reshoots of certain things or pickups because I'm like, I need to they didn't get it, I need to get it again. Because you have to, like when you know you didn't get it and you know it's a pivotal part of the film, you're like, you know, most things I was pretty flexible with. But I, when I knew that I had to get something again, I was like, man, we can't come back here. Like, well, we have to add it on top of the schedule. So the thing with Madison was she would work in both the day and the night scenes, both interior, exterior as well. So very rarely was I able to shoot past her. The times that we did, it would be when it was like coverage. If she was, um, you know, if it was a two-person scene between her and the monster, we'd shoot Madison out. And if we had to get, you know, the monster after her, we would do, you know, him last. Or with Josh and Charisma, we would, you know, shoot Madison out first and then and do them after if we were running low on time. This is a little bit of a tangent um, with SAG. Who is responsible for paying SAG residuals on your production is it the distributor or you? I believe it's me is how that works. When um, cause I read up all up on it with SAG is that I believe unless you're going through – now they have companies that do it um, like – oh, I forgot what they're called – but essentially, they have companies that take in all of the, like, you know, they'll, have, they'll take a percentage or whatever. And, you know, they'll be the ones that, it's an account that take in all the money. And then based on the contracts or whatever, they pay everyone out. Um, you know, based on, like, what type of SAG production you are, you know, what how many points this producer was promised and da 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 But I'm pretty sure because we didn't do that account because for our size movie and everything like that, it just didn't really make financial sense. Um, yeah, it's producers. <laughs> yeah. Are you prepared for when that, that bill comes? Do you know what it's going to be and when it's going to come? I have no idea. <laughs> and it's also different too, because it's based on now, this is the thing too. That's interesting. I think if it's based on like, I think if a TV network 
buys the movie or does something like that, I think they pay the residuals. I have to check on that. Mm. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. I, I only have heard one experience with SAG and residuals and the producer was responsible for paying them even though they have a, had a distribution company and so I guess they, they got a check from the yeah. distribution company and that check was almost equal to what they had to pay SAG. So they just like kind of turned that money right back around and, and paid SAG. Oh, it. yeah. It's it's really depressing when you start <laughs> to look at SAG residuals, especially yeah. too because they changed the contract on day one of my shooting day with when the pension and health went up from like 17.3 to 18%. And the whole thing happened on day one of my film, but they didn't come up with the number that it would be increased to until my last day, but we had to pay retroactively. Man. Wow. Well, yeah, I think it depends on the deal that you get, right? Like I think some deals, um, the production company or the distributor is, um, well, not the production company, the distributor is, is responsible. And then some deals, the production company or the LLC of the original film is responsible. So I just yeah. think it depends on, on the deal you get. And I think the, the worst deal you get, <laughs> you know, the more likely it is that you have to, you're responsible for the residuals, which happened to a couple friends of mine, you know, in their projects. Yeah, I think most you know. indie films, like especially when you're going to be doing like the VOD side and like you're splitting up your sales and it's not just like one giant buyout from like a massive, you know, um, you know, studio or company. Yeah. It's like, you're probably going to be the one that's responsible for those good old SAG residuals. Yeah. It seems like there should be a way to kind of calculate what your residuals might be ahead of time I, you know, I work in advertising and we have a business affairs department and when we want to figure out the residuals on a commercial you know we can have them run the numbers based off of where we think it's going to play so well, there's got to be brilliant. some way to kind of figure it out and so that way as filmmakers we're armed at least when we're negotiating a distribution deal to say hey every time it, if you guys sell it to this kind of market, that's going to mean this is that cost to me. So I need you guys to kind of guarantee at least this minimum. So I'm not out of pocket on these yeah. residuals. Oh, totally. That would be a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. If they could have like an actual calculator for it, especially if you could just put in, you know, an estimated calculator. I know they're doing that more and more for, um, for tax incentives too, where yeah. it's like you can input your budget and like where, certain things are going and they can give you like an estimated number for what you're going to get back um, from that state. And so that would be really great to do To that. be researched. We will figure this out. Ulrich, you have any questions about directing yeah, a minor? Yeah, I do. Um, I'm curious, how much time did you get to um, rehearse with Madison? What, did you have like like a two or three whole days where you were able to just go through the whole movie with her and like, you know, kind of... Uh, read lines and and talk about the character and blocking or was it more like you just got to rehearse with her like one or two times before you actually shot the shot each each take each scene yeah pretty much uh that we i would only um and i had spoken to madison you know pretty extensively about it during the audition process and callback process and then i took her family and herself like out to dinner before we all went to kentucky and we talked then um but when we were on set it was game time like there was no i didn't get to you know rehearse with her for three days or anything like that it was just okay let's rehearse the scene cool let's shoot it go that's how it was and uh, very quickly you know that's a lot of the reason why I cast Madison is because of how quickly she took notes. Um, I knew, and then how also the understanding of the character that she had ahead of time. So I knew that I didn't have to spend a lot of time with her in rehearsals. Cause at the end of the day, it's like when you're producing and directing and you're the writer, 
you don't have that time, especially when like you're working with SAG and you have to pay for rehearsals and all these other things as well. So I yeah, essentially, totally. so go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I don't know. You're good. But point being that like, yeah, I, I don't even think I rehearsed other than just like rehearsing a scene, you know, with camera and everything before you actually go for a take. Like we didn't do any like structured rehearsals. Wow. So you didn't have any rehearsal days with any of the cast. Just you just jumped right in after having conversations with them, basically. Yeah. We I mean, we would grab like with Josh and Charisma. We spoke and like had lunch uh, individually ahead of time. But like, yeah, that was it. I mean, a lot of these actors, too, especially when they come from TV, they're used to that. You know, they're used to just showing up, you know, having a conversation during a table read or whatever the script and showing up on set with an understanding of the character and going for it. Um, But a lot of them are very much used to not having these extensive rehearsals ahead of time. So they were all pros. I mean, and again, like that's where casting is so important because you're not just casting, you know, the right character. You're also casting the right actor that's going to be best for your set and your parameters. In my mind, I have this really glorified idea of being able to rehearse with my actors like for like, you know, a full day or two two days or or whatever it is, you know. But I think uh, the reality is probably going to be just like what you're saying. You know, you just get to set and you got you to gotta rock and roll because you, know, you can't afford uh, rehearsal days and, you know, no, no one's going to have time, basically. Yeah, and I think it also depends um, on your film, too. Like if you're doing – if there's like – a very fight choreographed, like stunt heavy scene or whatever, then yeah, you may want to have that rehearsal done ahead of time. Or if you're the way that your um, film or the style of your film is structured is, you know, a lot of long takes with a lot of different characters where you do need to have a lot of that blocking choreographed and just thought out ahead of time. Like that actually may end up saving you money because you won't be doing take after take after take to get it right. Um, but for my film, that was, it just, wasn't necessary. I think the one thing I want to ask Paulina is like, you know, what was something that you learned in um, working with um, minors that you, you'd pass on to other directors who maybe have never worked with a minor before who, or who are just starting to work with minors? Like what's one thing that you learned through your experience that, you know, you would definitely do next time? Absolutely. Um, Audition the parents because you're going to get a good sense of the kid through the parents and how the parents act. So that was, that's like a, that's a really big thing. Um, and let them do their thing. But when it comes to notes, be very, very specific because kids are sponges, but they're also really, you know, the way at this point in their lives, like when they're at school, okay, here's an assignment. This is how you do it. This is the result. Same with parents. Like these are your chores. This is what we expect. So they're used to things being a little bit more, this is what I need, right? This is a specific objective. Um, whereas with adults, it can be a little bit more of a conversation and a collaboration in that respect. So that's how you may want to direct them a little bit differently. But with kids too, and I think honestly it goes with all actors, like it's really, really important to just have fun because the minute you stop having fun, they stop having fun. And if they're not having fun anymore, now you've lost them. Um, so it's really important like to remember like we're just making a movie no matter what happens, like it's not the end of the world. And 
keeping that lightness is going to help, you know, just like Timothy, you were saying, like kids are so imaginative and they're so raw and creating that space for them to bring that out is really important. And if your space is very tense, like kids are so energetically intuitive, you know, and they're going to, but they're not always the most like articulate when it comes to their emotions. So they're not going to be able to say like some older actors, like, I don't like the energy in this room. I can't act in it. You know what I mean? They're just going to start maybe like not giving their best performance or shutting down a little bit. So just be very um, aware of that and really speak to their parents a lot on set, keep their parents happy. And, and, you know, that will help them keep their kid happy too, because when you're directing a different scene, they're off with their parents. And if their parents were like, wow, that was amazing. You're doing so great. Like, I love this set. The director is so fun. That's going to play into the kid's experience as well. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, so I just started working with kids recently and a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old on a sitcom that I've been directing. I've done uh, three episodes so far, and I think I might do one more uh, coming up soon. But uh, anyways, that's sort of been my experience too, is just to be clear. And, uh, you know, we have to shoot a lot in a really short amount of time. And I get, I got no rehearsal time with them on both the shoots I did. So I just found being clear and, um, you know, just, and then talking to the parents to making sure, to make sure that everything's okay. That's, that's sort of, you know, what worked for me so far. That's true. I actually think it makes you a better director overall because you have to be so clear. Yeah. It's weird. I'm, I'm kind of funny with kids. (laughs) I don't really like talk to them as kids. I kind of just talk to them as uh, mini adults, you know? Um, Oh, for you too. Okay. Yeah. That's how they (laughs) want to be spoken to. Yeah, that's funny because I've seen other directors like, you know, kind of get their like their kids sort of approach, you know, especially with younger actors, you know, even like under nine, you know, and I'm like always like uh, impressed on like how charming and, you know, affable these directors can be with kids. But for me, I just can't I can't do that. I just have to treat them like any other member of the crew or any other actor, you know, just be like, yes. You are a little person. I'm gonna treat you like a. That's an good adult. though. It sets the standard of professionalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's worked out so far. So you know, I'm gonna stick with it. But uh, I'd I'd love to hear from other people, like you know, what their approaches approaches are. But I think it's fun. It's nice to hear that someone else does it the same way that I do. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Well, Timothy, any last final questions before we wrap things up? No, I feel good. Um, Paulina, where can people find you? People can find me on all the socials. Um, I'm on Instagram uh, at Paulina Laguti, and then at Mail Order Monster uh, is our Instagram, Mail Order Monster Movie on Facebook. And I'm also Paulina Laguti on Facebook. Um, you can go to our website, which is mailordermonstermovie.com. Um, we have a lot. Uh, posted there and then I have uh, Jack's Productions is my company so you can go jacksproductions.com or jacksmakesmovies.com pretty much if you just google my name I think I'm like the only <laughs> one out there so the only Paulina Laguti out there yeah okay well thanks again uh, to Paulina for being on the show um, you know, you guys find all the information, um, you know, about uh, Mail Order Monster and, and her as a filmmaker on our website. Uh, we'll have it all up there. Um, you can check out our website at makingmoviesishard.com where you can find, um, you know, all the other things that we talked about, links to all the other things we talked about on the show. Hopefully some of Paulina's short films that she made before uh, Mail Order Monster and um, any other work that she may have. 
Uh, and then if you want to get in contact with us, you can send us an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com, or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at MMIH Podcast. And please, if you like the show, tell a friend, spread the word. Uh, you can leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And yeah, thanks again, Paulina, for being on the show. It's been a, been a really great conversation. Thanks, you guys, so much. Thank you. All right, everyone, have a good week.